This morning we'll look at the third installment from the book of Exodus. And so if you'd look in your Bibles, please, uh, to the book of Exodus, we'll be looking at chapter 19 through uh, the 11th verse of chapter 24. And you'll find Exodus 19 on page 60 if you have a red Bible from the back or perhaps an ESV version of the Bible. And so if you would look then on page 60 or uh, Exodus 19, for the public reading of the word, uh, I want to read from chapter 19 and read through the first half of the 8th verse, uh, verse 1 down through the first half of the 8th verse. So we'll start in chapter 19, verse 1, and if you would stand in honor of the inerrant word of God. As we read it together. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, and for the Sinai covenant. Aid us today as we look at it to be encouraged as the church under the new covenant. Help us to see your glory more clearly. To love the riches of the gospel more dearly. And to give thanks to you for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to Exodus 19, Moses has come full circle. He started on Mount Horeb, which is the same as Mount Sinai, at the burning bush. And God gave him a sign at the burning bush way back in Exodus chapter 3 
that said, this is a sign you will serve me on this mountain. And so chapter 19 then opens with Israel camped before the mountain of God and with Moses going up the mountain to meet God. The Exodus came about, we're told, in uh, the end of chapter 2, that God came about because God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. The Sinai covenant established Israel as a great nation. So here we are in the very center of the book of Exodus, in the very center of the Pentateuch. We have this covenant that God is cutting with Israel. The Sinai covenant was not Israel's salvation, but it was a further revelation of the nature and the character of God. Any Israelite who was ever saved, any Israelite who was ever redeemed spiritually, was saved the same way Abraham was, and that was by faith in the promise of God. Now, we already know the rest of the story. Uh, We know that the Sinai covenant will be broken before Moses can ever come down off the mountain. And we know that this entire generation, save two people, will die in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And so this begs the question then, why then the law? Why the Sinai covenant, if that is the reality? And even maybe a better question is, why should we even preach from the Pentateuch? Well, I want you to notice as we get to the answer of that question, the structure of this text, because I think the structure of it is very helpful. Chapter 19 and chapter 24 are the bookends of the Sinai Covenant. The law itself, the Sinai Covenant, is given in chapters 20, 21, 22, and 23. That covenant comes in two parts. It comes in a part that's called the words, and it comes in a second part that's called the rules. And so if you look in chapter 20, verse 1, it says all these words, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. And then when we get to the first verse of chapter 21, it says, now these are the rules. Now the words are what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. They're not called that anywhere in Scripture. They're translated as Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus 34, 28, uh, Deuteronomy 4, 13, and Deuteronomy 10, 4. But it's still the Ten Words. It's the words. Now, it's okay to call them the Ten Commandments because they are commandments, and there is ten of them. So I think we're on safe ground to call them the Ten Commandments. But they're the words. These are the words that God spoke. And then there are the rules, and the rules are the application of the words in the uh, civil life of the Israelites. And so we have the words and the rules. When you look in chapter 24, you can see that Moses combines the rules and the words. Look in verse 3 of chapter 24, for example. Moses came and told the people all the words, that's chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, and all the rules, that's chapters 21, 22, and 23. 
And then verse 4 of chapter 24 tells us Moses wrote down all the words which encompasses the rules and the words. He wrote those down and then he read those to the people. And so in in, uh, verse 7 of chapter 24, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So the putting together of the words and the rules then came to be called the book of the covenant. So the question is, how do we preach the old covenant? Especially when we know from reading the New Testament and as people under the new covenant that the old covenant is obsolete. Well, we have to use the law lawfully. We have to interpret it lawfully. We have to preach it lawfully in the new covenant. But the right use of the law has been a topic for the ages. In the early church, the Judaizers taught that to be saved, one had to come under the law of Moses and then place faith in Jesus Christ. And so the law was being used in New Covenant times in Old Covenant ways. That is not a lawful use of the law. Now in my lifetime, uh, and uh, I guess in your lifetime, because we are contemporaries, um, the law... Uh, has, uh, has been in the Reformed tradition and in the dispensational tradition has kind of been used in Judaistic kind of ways. And so I've heard it preached like this. Preach the law to bring about the knowledge and conviction of sin. And when that's accomplished, direct men to place their faith in Christ. And then when they believe, take them right back to the law for their sanctification. Now, probably the hope of that kind of preaching is that through the command, we'll be able to produce holiness in the people of God. But now there's a problem with that because the New Covenant testifies to us that there is no power in the commandment to produce holiness. The law cannot make you right with God. It never made anybody right with God, and it's not going to make you right with God. It's not going to make me right with God. In the new covenant, however, the Spirit of God is the one who convicts men of sin. We preach the gospel in belief and in hope that the Spirit of God will bring the conviction of sin. The Spirit of God directs men to place their faith in Christ, and then the Spirit of God takes up residence in the believer in order to sanctify him, to make him into the very, or to conform him into the very image of Christ. So we don't need law to live the Christian life. We need power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to flow in and through our lives. Now, unlike the law, God administers the new covenant through faith. Not through works, but through faith. The goal of all Christian instruction is love. And so the right use of the law then is to further the Christian gospel and to help us understand the outflowing of Christian love. The law points to our need of Christ who alone is the fulfillment of the law. Paul said in Romans 10:4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
So as we look at the Sinai Covenant, we have to keep some things in mind. And uh, I, I just want to point these out briefly. And if you can hold them in your mind, if you can't, if you're like me, you just have to read, read them later. But one is to divide the law into categories of civil, ceremonial, and moral. And then add that Christ fulfilled the civil and ceremonial, but the moral law still applies, is to misunderstand the law of God. Another thing to keep in mind is that the law is a further revelation of the character and nature of God. And God has not changed. He is still righteous and holy. A third thing to keep in mind is that the law created the nation of Israel. It's not a covenant that the Gentile nations or the church is under or has ever been under. And then I want you to keep in mind last that the old covenant was temporary, conditional, and thus breakable. As the church, we are under the new covenant which is unconditional unbreakable, and permanent. So as we approach the Sinai Covenant then, I want to focus on the proper application of the law. That's what we're going to do. What is the proper application of the law or the lawful use of the law? Number one, our first slide, the Sinai Covenant is a further revelation of God. So the Sinai Covenant is a further revelation of God. The burden of the book of Exodus is that God will be known. We've talked about that throughout when we get to Sinai. This is the same burden of the book of Exodus. Now we have a tendency, I think, to think of Israel in Egypt as a righteous, holy, God-honoring people. I want to remind you, it was not Israel who remembered God's covenant with Abraham, but it was God who remembered His covenant with Abraham. And because of God's memory of His own covenant with Abraham, He was moved by His own promise to create a people, a nation for His own possession. Israel was a people in Egypt who did not know God, living among a people who did not know God. And into that chaotic world, God moved in creative power. And you can, see the, you can see the creation themes if you read the book of Exodus closely. Because in chapter 1, the people of Israel multiplied. And so that pulls on Genesis 1. And the same word about the creatures that God made in the sea, teeming in the waters. That's the word that's used there. They multiplied and they were teeming. So into that chaotic world, God moved to multiply His people. He revealed Himself in a way that He said the patriarchs did not know Him. He revealed Him as the God who redeems. And He revealed Him by saying, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the God who would redeem Israel from Egyptian bondage. He overthrew the gods of Egypt, the arbiters of oppression and all things chaotic, calling on the creative world to testify to His divine nature and attributes and power as He upended everything in an Egyptian cosmology uh, by which they understood the world. 
All of this was not only that Egypt and that Pharaoh and that the nations might know God, but it was that the Israelites might know God as well. So there are two questions that arc over the book of Exodus. And one question is asked by the Israelites, and the other question is asked by Pharaoh. The Israelites ask, what is your name? And Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? that I should obey Him. So when you get to the very center of the Sinai Covenant text, we hear that echoed again in the book of Exodus. Look in chapter 20, verse 1. How it starts. I am the Lord. Again and again and again, we've heard that in the book of Exodus. Only this time, he adds, I am the Lord your God. This shows that the Sinai covenant is unmistakably a further revelation of the righteous character of God. The basis for obedience was simply who God is. He is the Lord. Now you can see when we get to the very prologue of the rules at the end of chapter 20, before we get into chapter 21, uh, you, you can see in verse 22 that the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from the mountain. And so the people saw the revelation of God as he gave his law from Mount Sinai. In fact, they heard the voice of God. Now it's interesting to me that he follows that in chapter 20, verse 23, he follows that. Here I am, this is who I am. And then he says in verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver or gold. So he he reiterates the prohibition against idolatry because the revelation of God eliminates idolatry. The revelation of God on the mountain. How did God reveal himself on the mountain? You can see in chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. That is the revelation of God on Mount Sinai. And then it's reiterated at the end of the Ten Commandments in verse 18 of of chapter 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And uh, they told Moses, "You, you speak. We don't want to hear God speak anymore. Now you understand why in verses 22 and 23, God reminds them, this is who I am, you saw me, you shall make no other gods. You you can't make an image of lightning and thunder and clouds and trumpets. It's impossible to make that image. So the revelation of God excludes idolatry. The text is at pains to reveal the, uh, God's righteous and holy character. In chapter 19, verse 4, uh, God instructs Moses to tell Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
And then Moses in the ensuing treks up and down the mountain in chapter 19. If you just read the chapter, he goes up and down three times. It makes you tired reading it. There he is. He goes up, he talks to God. God says, go down, tell them. He goes up, talks to God. God says, go down, tell them. He goes up again, has to go down again and tell them again to remind them all that God had said. Up and down the mountain goes God. Those treks relaying the instructions of God for His people coming into the presence of God show us the holy and righteous character of God. Then the people had to go through ceremonies of consecration. They had to wash themselves. They had to wash their clothes. They had to do all of these things because God is holy. So the law over and over again reveals the righteous character of God. In fact, the Sabbath command came to them because God created the earth in seven days. That is, they were to imitate God in the world. If they took someone's cloak and pledged, they had to return it before nightfall because God is compassionate. The sojourner, the widow, and the fatherless had to be cared for because God would hear their cry from heaven and He would kill them if they didn't do it. So the law reveals the righteous character of God. It reveals the nature of the, care of the, of the lawgiver. The law is holy, just, and good because it reflects the holiness, justice, and goodness of God. What then is the right use of the law? The right use of the law is, I understand that sin is anything contrary to the nature and character of God. That's what sin is. Number two, the law magnifies sin. The law magnifies sin. Paul said the law was added because of transgressions until, so it's temporary, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. But it was added because of transgressions. Now when you look at the bookends of the book of the covenant, chapter 19 and chapter 24, you have God speaking to the people and the response of the people in chapter 19 verse 8 is this. All that the Lord, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then if you look in chapter 24, you'll see at the very end of verse 3, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then once again, you'll hear that from them in verse 7 of chapter 24. When Moses took the book of the covenant, he read it to the people. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they added, we will be obedient. Obviously, they lacked comprehension. They way over-promised. They didn't have a sense of their own sinfulness. This is what's going on in the text. Now we look at it and we say, good grief. They experienced signs, wonders, and miracles of the Exodus. There was the parting of the Red Sea. 
There was manna that came down out of heaven. In fact, there will be manna coming down for years to come. There was water from a rock. They saw a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They heard the very voice of God. They saw the manifestation of the presence of God. They were afraid and trembled at what they saw. We would think they would get an idea. Now we understand why the law We understand why Paul said the law was added because of transgressions. The law doesn't make you holy. It magnifies your sin. Because one thing we have to understand is that God is absolutely holy. He is absolute perfection. And there's nobody, no person that can live up to that standard. Israel didn't understand how bad they were. They had become so entrenched in a pagan cosmology, an Egyptian cosmology, that they approached God the same way pagans approach God. They were very religious. This is what Paul said in Romans 10.3. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they're religious people. They just don't know God. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Where's the righteousness of God revealed? In the law right here. We'll see it further revealed in the Son of God. But here it is. It's in the law. And they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness by bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus. So what we have to understand is we're not measured by ourselves in comparison to ourselves or in comparison to others. We are measured by the absolute perfection of God. I find it interesting that in uh, chapter 20, verse 18, the people were afraid and they didn't want God to speak to them. Chapter 20, verse 19, the very last part of that verse says, we don't want God to speak to us lest we die. And then listen, look at Moses' response. In, uh, he, he says to them in verse 20, do not fear. For God has come to test you. That the fear of Him, I always think that's interesting. Don't fear, just fear. Fear Him, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. Understand the perfection of God so that you might understand your own sin. So the law came to make sin appear sinful. The right use of the law then is to teach me that righteousness is not some arbitrary standard out here. If I can just live up to this set of rules or whatever, I'll be okay. I have my checklist or if I'm I'm Orthodox Jew, I have the law of God or whatever it is. This standard, it's not an arbitrary standard that I achieve, but I am measured by the God who is righteous and holy and just and good. And so then I understand my sin. My sin is magnified. 
in the presence of that God. Some say that when you, when you learn more of God, when you get closer to God, all of a sudden you see yourself better and you see your sin. Now that's not to despair. God's leading you to mercy. Now number three, the law points to our need of Christ. The law points to our need of Christ. Immediately we see that in the law there was a distance between the people and God. There were limits set and there were pains taken to enforce those limits. So uh, in chapter 19 verse 12, uh, the scripture says, and you shall set limits for the people. God giving Moses instruction, uh, set limits for the people all around saying, take care that you do not go up to the mountain or even touch it. You're just not able to do that. Now Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel were allowed to go further and to worship from afar, but the people were not allowed to go on the mountain. For example, look in chapter 24. Then, uh, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. What do you, isn't this interesting? What do you have here going on in the text? You have the, you have the model, the plan being laid out for the tabernacle. And so uh, the tabernacle, God t- is going to tell Moses, you build it according to the pattern I showed you in the mountain. Well, this is part of that pattern. The most holy place was Moses drawing near to God. The holy place that's a little further out, this is where Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders of Israel were. And then the people were not even allowed to touch the foot of the mountain. That corresponds to the outer court where their people were. It speaks of separation. We cannot approach God on our own. It's off limits. So there's a separation between God and the people. Why is that the case? It's because the law cannot make you righteous. Paul said, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law clearly teaches that we need a mediator to approach God. For example, back in chapter 19, verse 9, this is what the Lord says to Moses. This is one of the things God's teaching Israel in this Sinai event. He says, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. And may also believe you forever. And then, when we get over to, uh, to chapter 20, uh, this is what happens. This is the way the people interpret it. Because they say in verse 19, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses, you be the go-between between us and God. At the very end of the giving of the ten words, before we get to the rules in this section of text, uh, chapter 20, verses 22 through the end of chapter 20, 
Suddenly when God is revealed, there's a prescription that's given for altars and sacrifices. In the ratification ceremony in chapter 24, uh, in verses 1 through 11, you can see that there were offerings that were offered and Moses took half the blood and threw it against the altar. He took the other half and he sprinkled it on the people as the blood of the covenant. And it was then, interestingly... After there was mediation, after there was blood, that Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, chapter 24, verse 9 and 10, went up and they saw the God of Israel. So the law magnifies the transgression. It cannot open a way to God. It necessitates a priesthood and sacrifice. However, in the Old Covenant, those sacrifices could never take away sin because they had to be offered over and over and over and over again. And so they point then to something beyond themselves. They point to our need of Christ. The writer of Hebrews said repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, were offered. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what is the right use of the law? The right use of the law is to say, you need Jesus. You need someone who can stand between you and the wrath of God against your sin. Number four. The law anticipates the new covenant And the age of the Spirit. The law anticipates the new covenant and the age of the Spirit. Now when you stand back from the law code and look at it as a whole, you can understand why Jesus said it's summarized in two commands. You love God and you love your neighbor. In fact, Paul said love is the fulfilling of the law. The law of the old covenant summed up in love points us to the law of Christ. Now watch this. Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he said to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God. Which law, Paul? But under the law of Christ. The apostle said, I'm under the law of Christ. So then that begs the question, what is the law of Christ? Well, we study 1 John. And you notice in the study of 1 John, over and over again, John talks about a new commandment we had heard from the beginning. And he tells us that that commandment is that you love one another. Where would John get the idea of a new commandment? From his gospel. Because at the Last Supper, at the Passover, 
when Jesus took the bread and he took the wine and he gave it to his disciples and he had washed their feet, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The old covenant could not save and it could not sanctify. It pointed to something else. And this is why Jeremiah said that there would be a new covenant. And God would write His law on our hearts. What law? The law of the old covenant? No, the law of the new covenant. He would write on our hearts. And how would it be written on our hearts? Isn't that a huge question? And so you have the connection between Sinai and Pentecost. Sinai and Pentecost. So when you're reading the book of the covenant, and you get to the very end of the book of the covenant in chapter 23, verses 14 through 17, you have the prescription for three feasts. There's the feast of unleavened bread. We notice right after Passover. Forty-nine days later, there's the Feast of Harvest. And then later, there is the Feast of Ingathering. Now that middle feast, the Feast of Harvest, and it's called other things as you go through the Scripture, but it's the Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament. Now we know what happened at Pentecost in the New Testament. Jews celebrated Pentecost as the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. The connection between Sinai and Pentecost. So at Pentecost, when the Spirit came, we had the law of the new covenant. The Spirit of God indwelling the people of God. So Paul understood the age of the Spirit in salvation history. When he's writing in the book of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In the new covenant, the law of Moses on Tablets of stone have been replaced by the law of the Spirit written in our hearts. Well, the question arises, how then will we be holy? Well, at the very end of a sin list, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where any of us would say, just pull out the second table of the Ten Commandments. That takes care of that. Listen to this sin list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, take everybody back to the Old Covenant, to the Ten Commandments, so we can stamp this out of the world. 
That's not what Paul said. What did Paul say? Aren't you on pins and needles? He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How? How are we sanctified? How are we washed? How are we justified? He said, by the Spirit of our God. That's how. We're sanctified by the Spirit of God. The old covenant's not going to do it for you, brother. If you belong to Jesus... The Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart and He makes you holy. But you know, people want regulations to live by, don't we? And we want regulations. I want to know what the rules are. I remember as a teenager when I was in youth group, that was the big question in youth group. All right, tell us, what can we do? There's the other side of that question, right? What can I get away with? There's a meaning to that question, right? I'm wanting to do something that may be sinful. And I want to walk as close to that line as I can without stepping over it. Let me tell you something, young person. If that's you, you've already stepped over it. Holiness will not be produced with that kind of thinking. Christian life just doesn't work that way. Paul said, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Did you hear that? And then he went on in the same chapter, Galatians 5, and he said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. You hear me? The fruit of the Spirit is not, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then he adds this interesting phrase, against such there is no law. What is he saying? He's saying that the Spirit of God does in you and creates in you what the law could never do. Sit before its tables 10,000 years. And it'll never do that for you. But when the Spirit of God fills your life, He overflows you with love and joy and peace and gentleness and patience and long-suffering. Now, I want us to see one more slide before we go. Because we can't get out of here without missions. Because what we're talking about, it'd just be wrong, wouldn't it, on fall break? Not to talk about missions. But when we, when we get to this whole thing of the new covenant and the age of the Spirit, understand that the Spirit of God empowers the people of God to be a witness in the world. And so, when we look at the book of Exodus, and we're in chapter 19, verses 
5 and 6, we can see what God told the people. He said, if you obey everything that I command, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you'll be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, this is what Israel was to be in the world. In the midst of the nations. You can see on the slides, you have the two outer lines and you have the two middle lines. And so the first line, you'll be my treasured possession, is interpreted by the last line, is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the reason God was making them into a treasured possession and a holy nation and a kingdom of priests was because He had a redemptive interest in the nations among whom Israel lived. And He said the reason, the reason is the middle lines among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. It's interesting when we get to the golden calf incident. You know the first thing that happens when the golden calf occurs? The text says, the surrounding nations held them in derision. This is what God was after. And you understand in the new covenant, the text that Joe read at the beginning of our service, Shows that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. Now Israel is redefined as a mixed body of Jewish and Gentile believers chosen to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood to God in this world. So the missional identity of Israel received its fulfillment in the church. The church is a chosen people who make God known in the world. And it's the empowering of the Spirit upon the church that makes our lives together distinct in this world. And makes our mission effective. Now this morning, we've been reminded of our mission in a lot of ways. We've been reminded in terms of sending people out and receiving people in. Building and sending. This is the work of the Spirit among the people of God. Building and sending. Because we're a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood sent to declare His excellencies among the nations. The excellencies of the One who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, I find it interesting that uh, when Aaron and the elders of Israel saw the God of Israel, the text says in verse 11 at the very end, they beheld God and ate and drank.
Our God is about celebration. Isn't it good that we preach a gospel of the one who died for us, who took our sin upon himself, who bore God's wrath for us so that we could have access to God and do what? Eat and drink. The first thing we'll do when Jesus comes again is we'll sit down and we'll eat and drink. Our God is a God who's given us something to celebrate. And now we're going to celebrate together here in just a moment. But first, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, I want to invite you to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one way you make that public, and that is in baptism. I know it's odd, but it's biblical, and it's true, and it's wonderful. And it's after you go through the baptismal waters that you come to the table. This is the second thing. That's the first thing. This is the second thing. And so if you don't know Christ, I want to encourage you today, don't be embarrassed, but just let the trace pass. Nobody's going to single you out. We're glad you're here. But we just want this to be one more opportunity where Jesus speaks to you and says to you, you can't approach God except through me. So now uh, we're going to come to the table. If you're a member of an evangelical church in good standing, we invite you to come to the table with us. Uh, and uh, we're going to bow our heads, and the band's going to come, and then we're going to hand out the elements, and in a moment we will eat and drink together. So would you bow with me?